0: It's super easy. Just visit Serial Napper on your Spotify app and click the button at the top that says exclusive episodes for subscribers. Don't use Spotify for your listening? No problem. Just visit patreon.com slash Serial Napper to get your episodes ad-free and enjoy uninterrupted storytelling while you get your naps in. Everyone, Nikki Young here with my very first True Crime podcast. I am so freaking excited. It's finally happening. This is something I've really just I've wanted to do for, well, at least the past year. And with the world kind of ending and everything, I kind of uh have my chance. (laughs) So, welcome to my new True Crime podcast. Um, I'm calling this podcast Serial Napper. Why the name? Serial killers and kidnapping are key elements of most of my favorite true crime stories. Plus, your girl likes to take naps. All day, every day. To start off, I want to tell you a little bit about me. Um, Since this is my first podcast episode ever. I'm your typical 33-year-old mom, except I have a bit of an obsession with true crime and all things spooky. This interest of mine developed just when I was like six years old, and I would try to fumble with the bunny ears on a tiny black-and-white television set to sneak in late-night episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. Like, who remembers Unsolved Mysteries? (laughs) Those provided, I would say, 90% of my childhood nightmares. In my teens, a fun Friday night consisted of chips, dip, and dateline mysteries. Now, if you don't know what dip is, ask your fellow Canadian. (laughs) It's a very popular late-night snack, um, and, you know, it it went hand-in-hand with dateline every night. I'm a bit of a black sheep, a loner, if you will. And I've had to mostly keep my passion for murder mysteries a secret so as not to alarm the quote-unquote normal folk. I'm hoping to hang it with you in your living room, while you're doing the dishes, in the shower. Is that creepy? Hopefully not. Or wherever you might be listening from to talk about these things that we love. Creepy shit. My first episode is about the brutal murder of Lucy Blackman. This case is near and dear to me because most of what occurred happened just minutes from where I'm living in Tokyo, Japan. I picked up this book, and I'll talk a little bit more about the book at the end of this podcast, um, when I first moved to Tokyo because I'm obsessed with true crime, and what's spookier than reading about all of the crazy things that have happened close to you? I really didn't know what I was getting myself into but it turns out Tokyo and Japan can be really freaky places. Lucy Blackman was very much like the many foreign young women I see on a daily basis, and what happened to her was an absolute tragedy. If you're anything like me living across the world from a very foreign place like Tokyo, you've probably never heard the story of Lucy Blackman until now. So grab a drink, a snack, whatever floats your boat, and let's get started. We're going to take it back to the year 2000. It's hard to believe that was like 20 years ago. I was only 14. I was obsessed with glitter, blow-up couches, my new pager that I begged my dad for, but I never really used. I just wanted to look cool. Meanwhile, on the other side of the world, Lucy Blackman, just 21 years old, from Seven Oaks, Kent in the UK, arrived in Tokyo on a 90-day tourist visa with her friend Louise Phillips. She wanted to travel and see more of the world before settling down. And she always wanted to have adventures. She was a flight attendant prior to moving to Tokyo. When she told her mother her plans to move across the world to foreign lands her mother instantly had a bad feeling. She felt like something terrible was going to happen, but obviously she couldn't stop the strong-willed, adventurous Lucy. I can imagine her feeling much of what I felt when I first arrived in Tokyo. in complete and utter shock and wonder at her surroundings. If you've never been to Japan and experienced the culture shock that mm, pretty much smacks you right in the face as soon as you land, Let me fill you in. It's not just the fact that you're instantly surrounded by a different language that you don't speak or understand. The air smells different, it feels different. There are so many people just walking around, and everyone seems to be following instructions that are ingrained within themselves. Unfortunately, these instructions have not been engraved within you, so you're going to have to guess at everything you do. And hope that you're doing it right. I can only describe it as organized chaos. Also, get ready for a whole lot of bowing because you're going to be bowing until the day you die. Lucy Blackman, tall, blonde, and British, would have stuck out within the crowd when she flew into Tokyo in May 2000. Anyone that looks different at all from. A typical Japanese person is gonna get noticed pretty much right away. For example, I have my nose pierced and I have people staring at me literally all the time. I can only imagine the kind of attention a tall blonde would have gotten. Lucy had heard from her friend Louise that Tokyo offered a fun and easy way for her to pay off her debt while also getting to experience foreign culture. She was gonna work as a hostess at a nightclub called Casablanca. Now, I've walked by Casablanca a few times since hearing about the case, and it's no longer there, but there are other similar clubs in its place. It's a very tall, unassuming building. It has, you know, the regular restaurants on the bottom, and then the secret special type of nightclubs on top, on the top floors. If you're an American or a Canadian-born like I am, the term hostess probably means something much more different than it does in Japan. So I worked as a hostess at a sports bar during my college years, and my responsibilities included seating guests at their table, clearing dirty plates, washing cutlery, and occasionally taking orders if it was really busy. But a hostess in Japan has mm, different responsibilities. Wikipedia says they employ primarily female staff and cater to men seeking drinks and attentive conversation. Basically, these women are paid to pour drinks, light cigarettes, and pretend to be interested in the patrons, who are typically men. They receive bonuses for any expensive bottles of alcohol that they convince these men to consume. The particular club that Lucy worked in, the Casablanca, also paid bonuses out to any hostesses who booked extracurricular dates. On paper, these dates were, you know, not for sex because, you know, that's highly illegal in Japan, but for things like going out to restaurants and movies. This was and is a lucrative job for young women looking for a way to make great money while also having the opportunity to live in Tokyo where it can be really expensive to live and difficult to obtain the proper visas. Now, let's pause for a second and talk about the area the Casablanca nightclub is in. It's an area called Rapongi, and I live maybe 5 to 10 minutes away. It's definitely a party town. It's very popular with foreigners looking for a night out. It's very English-friendly, and it's a tad bit seedy. It's also frequented by Japanese people who wish to interact with foreigners, making it a really great place for the tall blonde Lucy to spend a lot of her time. After settling in and finding her hostess job at the Casablanca, Lucy emailed her friends and family back home just to let them know that she was okay. I mean, they were worried, obviously. She told them a little bit about her job as a hostess, and obviously her friends and family were extremely concerned. She reassured them that it was okay, there was no sex involved. All she was paid to do was talk to them, to have conversations with them. It was totally innocent and completely harmless. Very safe, and it paid well. She mentioned that every once in a while she'd get a dodgy client, but, you know, she could handle herself. And her friends and family kind of knew that about her. She had maintained her relationship with her boyfriend back home. His name was Jamie. And obviously he didn't like what she was doing for a living, but he knew that there was no way to talk her out of it. I mentioned previously that part of the hostess' responsibilities was to book dates for after hours. Dates to things like dinner. These dates are called Dohans. In Japan. And they'd happen if a hostess did a particularly good job con- conversating with their client, laughing at their jokes, making them feel important. Their job during the Dohans was to basically bring them back to the nightclub so that they could spend more money at the end of their dates. Just eight weeks after arriving in Tokyo, one hot night in July, Lucy Blackman would meet her last Dohan. Louise, which was Lucy's roommate and the young lady she had traveled to Tokyo with, stated that Lucy had agreed to meet a client just for coffee, but she said she'd only be an hour. They actually had plans to go out later that night together for a girl's night, and Lucy said she would definitely be back before then. As always, Lucy planned to keep in touch with Louise and keep her keep her up to date as to what was happening, you know, for safety reasons. At five thirty PM that night, Lucy let Louise know that her client had picked her up. They were headed to the coast. At 6.45 p.m., Lucy called Louise again to let her know that she would be heading home shortly. She'd be there for the girls' night out within an hour. She said she was having a great time with the client, and she was also really excited because he had given her a brand new phone, something that she wouldn't have been able to afford on her own. This was the last time anyone ever heard from Lucy again. Needless to say, she didn't show up for the girls' night, and she didn't show up at home the next day either. This was really not typical of Lucy, and I know most people say that, but Lucy was always very careful. She always let Louise know what was happening. Um, she was a planner, she was committed, she was a great friend. She never just disappeared. So, things were really, really weird. And when I say weird, I mean like Pull your socks up because they're about to be blown off. I love to travel. From the bustling city of Tokyo to the beaches of Thailand, there's nothing I enjoy more than getting the chance to see the world and experience different cultures firsthand. But the language barrier, it can be an issue. Sure, you can use an app on your phone, but things often get lost in translation. I truly believe that learning at least some of the language of the land that you're visiting is the first step to ensuring a smooth and meaningful experience. That's why I'm excited about Rosetta Stone, the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language that you want to learn. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered, including Japanese, Spanish, German, Korean, Italian, and more. Learning a new language can be tough especially with all of the different nuances. But Rosetta Stone is designed to help you speak like a local, so you'll feel confident in what you're saying. I don't know how many times I've been traveling to a new country and struggled to get my point across just because I wasn't properly pronouncing something that I thought I knew, which is why I love Rosetta Stone's built-in true accent feature, which helps you master your accent. They also have convenient desktop and app options, so you can learn on the go. Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership includes all 25 languages. So once you're finished learning one language, you can start on another. Whether you're an avid traveler like me or just want to impress your friends with a new skill, it's a steal of a deal at 50% off. That's right. 50% off. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Serial Napper listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Two days later. Lucy is missing for two days now. Louise was at home when she received a call from someone with a Japanese accent. They did speak very good English. What they would say would throw her through a loop. The man asked for her by name, so he knew who Louise was, and said that Lucy was okay, but that she had run away and joined a religious group. She wouldn't be coming home. Louise was confused as hell as you can imagine. When Louise asked if she could speak to Lucy herself, the man said she doesn't want to see anyone and hung up. Louise knew at that point it was time to call Lucy's mother and report Lucy's disappearance to the Japanese police. Lucy was very close to her mother. They kept in contact with each other just about every single day. She was the eldest of three children, and Lucy's mother said she was always like instant sunshine, a little butterfly in a room full of energy and life. She was also a prepper, a planner, and it was completely out of character for Lucy to make such a rash decision, like joining a religious cult, or to not be in touch with her mother for so long. At that point, her family and friends were convinced that she had been abducted by some strange cult in Japan and was being forced to stay there against her will. As you can imagine, reporting things to the Japanese police was quite difficult. There was a massive language barrier and a massive time difference. Japanese citizens come first, and so Lucy's case kind of went to the bottom of the pile in terms of importance. Not to mention, Lucy was an adult and was in a troublesome line of work, so it wasn't a huge priority for them. There are so many places someone could get lost in Tokyo, trust me. When nothing was really happening and the case wasn't really going anywhere, Lucy's family reached out to the British media and they started to pay particular attention to Lucy's case. When that happened, the Japanese police were forced to follow suit. They didn't want to become an embarrassment. It truly became a global issue at this point. Lucy's father flew to Tokyo to look for himself. He couldn't believe that she would just up and disappear and join a religious cult. Lucy was never really a religious person. If anything had happened, she was abducted and being held somewhere against her will. He, he just knew it. While sitting in a restaurant in Tokyo, Lucy's father, Tim, met a man named Hugh Shakeshaft. He was a British expat living in Tokyo, and he offered to help Tim with a few things, including giving him an office space and setting up phone lines that people could use to phone in tips. Once that happened, they received so many phone tips that, unfortunately, were all dead ends. Tim refused to let his daughter's name be forgotten. He even went as far as to petition the help from British Prime Minister Tony Blair and billionaire Richard Branson. I mean, any spotlight that they could shine on this was incredibly value, as it was difficult to get regular media attention in a faraway land like Japan. If nothing else, it put a bit of pressure on Japanese authorities and police forces. While the investigation continued, things were really quiet. Any tips or leads or information that the Japanese police force may have had, they kept to themselves. Until two months into the investigation, when the police received a strange handwritten letter It was written in English, and it was signed by Lucy. However, it didn't appear to be her signature. It seemed like it was forged. The police, her friends, and family all assumed she was being forced to write this letter. Perhaps she'd been recruited by a cult or lost into the sex trade industry. Nobody really knew, but from the phone call and now this handwritten letter, there were so many possibilities, and there was still a lot of hope that she was alive. Private investigator was hired and interviewed her local friends, patrons of the bar she worked at, anyone in Lucy's Tokyo life who may have had an idea of what was going on. A hostess at the Casablanca club came forward and mentioned there was a man Lucy was seen with in the club just days before her disappearance. She gave a description in case it was valuable. And the investigator had a sketch done up so that he could ask other people if they had seen this man or if they had any details about where he might be. This man would prove to be a very valuable suspect. After showing the drawing of this man, many ladies came forward to talk about their own experiences dealing with him. They had gone on dates with him, and they had come home feeling sick after a date. They just really got a bad vibe from him. I mean, ladies, you kind of just know in the gut of your stomach when someone isn't safe to be around. And there was some suspicion that he had been drugging them, possibly raping them, although it couldn't have been proved. The man was described as very well put together, he was Japanese, and he appeared to have a lot of money to spend. He spoke really good English, and he went to hostess bars quite often. At one point, the prime suspect was identified as 48-year-old Joji Obara. Now, let me tell you a bit about Obara. Hang on to your socks. Pull them up. Joji Obara was actually born Kim Sung Jong. He was half Korean, half Japanese. Born in Osaka to a very, very, very poor family, they eventually found wealth in pachinko parlors, which are basically casinos. Once they hit it big time, I mean, Obara attended the finest schools in all of Tokyo. He really had a head start in life. He was actually slated to take over his father's legacy. He traveled a lot. He made some really good investments. And at one point, he was valued at being worth about $38 million. He owned tons of properties and tons of cars. You could say he was a bit of a playboy. Now, here's where things are going to (sighs) get... ...icky. Um, I just want to put out a trigger warning there because we're going to talk a little bit about stuff that you know it 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 may seriously affect you um it's bad it's not good obviously and um it's going to involve uh it's going to involve rape unfortunately for obara who really had a head start against everyone else in life he had a darker side that would prevent him from finding any true success He really fixated on foreign women, and he found himself spending a lot of his wealth at hostess nightclubs, like the one that Lucy worked at. These nightclubs discouraged sex, as, you know, this is illegal in Japan. However, Obara had another idea. He figured he'd just drug his victims and rape them while they were unconscious. But unfortunately, because of their line of work... His victims had a difficult time getting the attention of the police. So they would be drugged, raped, wake up. He would tell them, you know, they had just fallen asleep. And they would feel sick and, you know, they would feel different just knowing that something had happened, but not really sure what. And, you know, they might have suspicions that they were drugged, but they definitely couldn't prove it. And they definitely couldn't go to the police. And, you know, O'Bara was careful. He often used a fake name. So identifying who he really was was going to be difficult anyway. Now that several women had come forward and identified who he was and said he had been hanging out at all the clubs, the spotlight was on him as the number one suspect. Lucy had spent time with him during her last shift, and now she was missing. The police knew he was trouble. I mean, there were lots of allegations against him, but would any of them lead to finding Lucy? When the police searched his apartment, the police couldn't believe what they had found. Get ready. Videotapes upon videotapes, made apparently by Obara, of him raping unconscious foreign women who he had met at the hostess bars. He had recorded his attacks on videotape of at least, you know, 400 cassettes that were recovered by the police. They suspected that he may have raped anywhere from 150 to 400 women. When reviewing the tapes, They didn't find a trace of Lucy Blackman. In fact, Obara denied ever meeting her at first. Five months later, Lucy's father, Tim, felt like they were no closer to finding out what had happened to Lucy or where she might be. This Obara guy, like, he was clearly a very bad man, but there was no evidence or proof that could point them in the direction of what may have happened during that encounter with Lucy. So he went to the media and pleaded anyone with information on O'Bara should come forward. And at some point soon, a tip came in from someone who had a little bit of information. Robert Finnegan. He had heard about the news about Lucy's disappearance, and he watched Tim's pleas on the news. He wasn't sure if, his case was related to Lucy, but he knew he had to come forward anyway and share what had happened to his fiancée, Karita Ridgway, in 1992. Karita was a beautiful 21-year-old aspiring actress living and working in Tokyo as a hostess almost a decade prior to Lucy's disappearance. She had come back from a weekend date with a client after club hours and was very, very sick. Unfortunately, she died in hospital just a few days later, and oddly enough, this part like kind of blows my mind, it was ruled to be a death of natural causes. Like I don't know how that would possibly happen. She was healthy, 21, went in there sick, and they couldn't figure out what had happened to her, and so they just had to put you know, natural causes on her death certificate. There was nothing to be done at the time. There was no proof of anything else. Seeing the disappearance of Lucy and Tim's plea, Robert knew that he had to contact the tip line to see if the two might be related. He had always suspected there was something more to Corita's story, but obviously he could never prove it. Upon further research, the police found video footage among the hundreds and hundreds of tapes of Karita Ridgeway. She was passed out unconscious, likely under the influence of a substance, and Obara was sexually assaulting her. So, it appears they had gone on a date, he drugged her drink, and he began to videotape himself assaulting Karita. She may have stirred, and he may have feared that she would wake up and he'd be caught. So he gave her some chloroform. But he unfortunately gave a little bit too much and it killed her. After this was discovered, the police had a compelling case of several rapes of foreign hostesses, but there was still no link to Lucy. Lucy's family were still not ready to give up. They truly believed that she might be alive, especially with the phone call and the handwritten letter. I mean, she couldn't be dead. And while the file kind of got pushed to the side while other cases took precedence, the family continued their media appearances and hoped that someone, anyone, might come forward with new information. Now I'm going to give you... (laughs) Another trigger alert, because it's about to go downhill fast. I mean, it's already been pretty bad, but we're about to go down, 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 down. February 2001. A little less than a year since Lucy had gone missing. Actually, she had been missing for seven months at that point. Hope was fading, and hope was about to be squashed completely. In a beautiful seaside cave, underneath an upturned, rusted bathtub that had been discarded close to one of O'Bara's properties, a package was found. Upon further investigation, um, it was found to contain a dismembered body, actually cut into eight parts, and they had all been encased in concrete. As the police chipped away at the concrete, they discovered a head, and they were able to identify it as Lucy Blackman's, Obara was believed to have done his work with a chainsaw, which was observed in his possession, but, of course, it ultimately disappeared by the time things went around to trial. Police, however, did find receipts for the chainsaw's purchase. The horrific way in which her body was found absolutely devastated her family, as you can imagine. While her mother envisioned she would be planning her daughter's wedding shortly, she was instead signing papers to authorize the body to be shipped back to the UK. Lucy had gotten in the car with this client, who she had known from previous encounters, and embarked on a beautiful day out with him. He whined and dined her. He seemed trustworthy. He bought her gifts. They had driven around the coast in his fancy car the weather would have been absolutely gorgeous that day and i can only imagine she was probably having the time of her life they actually visited the beach that day in fact other tourists had a photo of lucy on the beach smiling looking relaxed and happy i mean if i think about myself um i'm pretty keen to you know, understanding and feeling things and getting vibes from people. And the fact that she had met him in a public place, she had met him several times, he was well-known in the area, um, he had a ton of money, he seemed very wealthy and, like, a smart businessman. The fact that he had given her a gift... I mean, she probably had no idea what was in store for her next. I can't imagine she would. Several postmortems were performed in Japan and the UK, which revealed traces of sedatives and the date rape drug, Ruffinol. I mean, it sounds basically like many of the other women who he clearly drugged and raped and obviously something went very wrong um the family still doesn't really know what happened why she was killed um so you can kind of just guess you know maybe she woke up maybe he changed his mo and killing was the next step um an unidentified black substance was also found in her mouth but there is no conclusion as to the cause of death. Police had previously built quite a strong case against Obara in regards to the rapes, but now it was time to build their murder case in relation to Lucy Blackman. Obara wasn't going to go down without a fight. He had gotten away with so much for so long, he was completely cocky. Typically, and this is kind of funny, the conviction rate of anyone in Japan is like 99.9%. And this is actually because criminals usually confess in Japan. But Obara was ready to put up a fight. Of course, as can be imagined, he put in a plea of not guilty. When confronted with anecdotal, circumstantial, and even video evidence, he claimed all sex with the women, even though that they were passed out had been prostitution they were consensual but there was evidence that to state otherwise of course right and the police had found blonde hairs in obara's apartment fingerprints all matching to lucy of course and that phone call that lucy had made to her friend louise the one where she said she would be home within the hour it all pinpointed back to obara's apartment Still, Obara denied what had happened, obviously. He admitted that, you know, she was at his apartment, but she was there and she was high on drugs. He actually had to call and have someone take her home because she was acting so erratically. Still, the police pushed on. Both the phone call that he had made to Louise, stating, you know, Lucy had joined a cult, and the forged letter were traced back to Obara. But there was no direct evidence linking Obara with Lucy's body. And the case just dragged on and on and on. I mean, like, dragged on. Justice moves very slowly in Japan, even slower than in North America, where things can really take forever. Five years into the trial, Obara was still facing charges related to the drugging and raping of so many hostesses in Tokyo. The bills were adding up for the Blackman family, who had to fly into Tokyo for every update on the trial. We're quite literally going broke. And then Obara made an offer. Okay. (laughs) He made an offer. It was shocking beyond belief, but it's not so untypical in Asian culture. Obara offered up to £450,000. In what is called mimaken, And I might be pronouncing that wrong. And if I am, please let me know. But it's basically condolence money. So if a crime is committed against someone, the criminal can offer up condolence money. Seems kind of messed up in a murder case. Not going to lie. Here's an even weirder part. And I mean, thinking about it a little bit, I can kind of understand. but tim lucy's father accepted as you can imagine this caused a huge rift in the family as most were against accepting any kind of condolence money from the man who murdered lucy especially lucy's mom who thought it was just an absolute slap in the face and you know there would never be any justice for lucy tim on the other hand felt like they had lost so much money they were just about bankrupt. They had lost so much already. Like, why not take the money? And he also set up a trust fund in Lucy's name. Basically, the trust fund was set up to promote personal safety um, uh, for other women who, who might find themselves in a similar situation as Lucy. It didn't really make much of a difference when it came to sentencing the Mimakin. making? I'm so sorry if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. Although the judges convicted him and gave him a life sentence, they had initially acquitted him of any charges involving Lucy Blackman because of lack of forensic evidence tying him directly to the murder. It was a stunning result that outraged the Blackman family. Thank God, a year later, he was convicted of abduction and mutilation, but not murder. Not murder. Now, as a diplomat, I'm not here to judge the police or the judicial system here. Lord knows we have our own problems handing out justice in Canada, but I wanted to highlight Lucy's story because it really affected me. I can understand what it's like to move to Tokyo, which, let me tell you, (laughs) it's a completely different world here. I was also young and a little naive once upon a time. I mean, I really do feel for her. She didn't deserve this. None of these women deserved this. But because this happened a world away, it kind of feels like it hasn't gotten the attention it deserves. So I really wanted to highlight it. There is so, so much more to this case, more than I could ever cover in a podcast. Like... Absolute insanity. It's crazy. So, let me recommend a book to you. The first book I read when I moved to Tokyo, because I'm kind of a weirdo like that. Like, really, oh, welcome to Tokyo. Here is a crazy murder that happened on a foreign woman like yourself. That's okay. It's called People Who Eat Darkness by Richard Lloyd Perry. It does a really in depth dive into the very different nightlife culture of Japan and the way policing is done here. Um, the author was actually a reporter at the time covering the case here in Tokyo. And I know that this story will completely hook you because it is absolutely bonkers. There is a lot of stuff surrounding Obara that I, I just didn't have time to cover here. A lot of crazy stuff that he did thinking he would never be caught because he had gone unnoticed. For so many years, drugging and raping foreign women and never getting caught. (sighs) Okay. (laughs) If you're anything like me, you like to shut your brain off and learn a little bit about the crazy people in this world. I love true crime because... I'm so curious about what makes real-life monsters in this world tick. I don't know what keeps us coming back for more, even when it hurts, but just know that I'm sitting here, hanging out in my living room, also wondering what the fuck is wrong with the world. So, until next time, you can search for my Facebook page, Serial Napper, that's with an S, not a C, not like what to eat or email me at serialnappernick, N-I-K, at gmail.com, and hopefully we can get this thing going. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this was everything you you dreamed it would be. Um, Obviously, this is my very first podcast, so um, if you have any feedback, I would love to hear it. If you want more details, if you want me to shut up, if I'm breathing too heavy, if I don't know, I don't know, anything at all, please feel free to leave me some feedback because I want to keep working on this and molding it to be exactly what I envision. Um, So yeah. All right, until next time, guys, hope you're all staying safe. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time. Bye.